my name is Michael. I'm one of the, the clergy here at Servants, and it's a, a privilege to worship with you all this morning. I'm excited that we get to baptize some of our younger ones this morning. And we baptize them because we want to welcome them into the family of Jesus. We want them to grow up knowing the heart of Jesus. And when we talk about the heart, not in like the biological organ kind of sense of the word, but in like the, in the more figurative type way, it's like getting at the core of who someone is. If you say, that person has a good heart, what you're saying is that person is a good person. And if we were to ask, what is Jesus' heart like? What would you say? Our, our passage this morning, as far as I know, is the only passage in the Gospels that specifically tells us what Jesus' heart is like. And if we don't understand the nature of Jesus' heart, we are likely to not receive him, to not respond well to him. Our passage falls in a section of Matthew where Matthew is focusing on how people respond to Jesus. Some people are responding very positively. They're excited about who Jesus is and they want to follow him. Some people are responding in a neutral way like John the Baptist. They like Jesus but they, they don't know about some things and they're trying to work things out. That's what we see at the beginning of this chapter. And some people, as we see after this chapter, are just going to reject Jesus entirely. And in that way, just like then, that's how people are now. Some people are excited about Jesus. They're enthusiastic about his message when they learn about him. Some people don't know. They're trying to figure things out. And some people just want nothing to do with him. But what this passage suggests to us is for us to respond well to Jesus. We have to understand his heart. What is his heart like? Well, at the beginning of this passage that, that Jesus says in order to respond to his heart, we have to know what his heart is. And he says it has to be revealed to us. As he says in verse 25, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And when we hear that, we might kind of recoil a bit because it, it sounds like Jesus is being exclusionary. He's hiding, like God is hiding himself from people. That's what it sounds like. And in our culture, being exclusionary is one of the worst things that you can do. And yet Jesus, when Jesus says that, he thanks God. He's excited about that. Does this reflect a kind, good heart of Jesus? Does this reflect a heart that we would want to draw near to? It's, it might be hard at first glance, but, but this gets at something that I think is really important about Jesus, about Christianity, is that, that Christianity is at the same time incredibly inclusive and exclusive all at once. It's inclusive and exclusive all at once. And, and we can see how Christianity is inclusive in terms of who Jesus says God is not revealed to. He says in verse 26, he says that he's not, he has hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. In our culture, there are many doors that will not open to you unless if you have the right credentials, unless if you have the right capabilities, unless if you know the right people. 
if you don't check the right boxes, then there will be opportunities that you will never have access to. It depends upon who you are, how good you can be. And that eliminates lots of people from access to certain parts of our society. It's very exclusive. But here, Jesus is saying that that is not what God is like. You don't have to be a VIP to know what God is like. You don't have to be a priest. You don't have to have gone to seminary to know who God is. God does not only reveal himself to the people who are put together, to the people who are smart, to the people who look good. And in fact, some people in the early days of Christianity made fun of it for that very reason, that the, the church was not a group of people who had their lives together. It was a group of people who were more like of ill repute. Uh, I mentioned in, in Easter how there was a guy named Celsus who attacked the early church. And in one of his um, arguments against Christianity, he, he mocked Christians as, uh, because he said that, that, that Christians are able to convince only the foolish, the dishonorable and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. He said Christianity was not prestigious enough. It's not exclusive enough. But here we see that God does not reveal his loving heart only to those who are lovely. So Christianity is inclusive, but at the same time it's exclusive. Because as we read in verse 27, Jesus says, that God will be revealed to um, only those that the Son chooses to reveal him. And so that kind of sounds bad, but that begs the question, well, who does the Son choose to reveal the Father to? How, how tall is this wall? How exclusive is this boundary? And we see that in the very next verse, in 28, we see that Jesus calls to him, to, to, he calls people to see the Father, all who labor and are heavy laden. And that's a boundary. He's not including those who do not labor. He's not including those who are not heavy laden. But the reality is, this is one of the most inclusive boundaries that you can have in all of humanity. Because it's nigh impossible to go through life without feeling burdened in some way. Um, there is a, a, a writer named Harry Cruz who grew up impoverished in the South, and I have not read a word of anything that he read, of, of anything that he wrote, but uh, Fleming Rutledge is a, is a priest who wrote a book on the crucifixion and she quotes something from his memoirs. He talked about how when he was a kid, impoverished in the South, they grew up looking at the people on the covers of magazines and this was his reflection on that experience. He said, nearly everybody I knew had something missing. A finger cut off, a toe split, an ear half chewed away, an eye clouded with blindness from a glancing fence staple. But the people in the catalog had no such hurts. They were not only whole, they were also beautiful. And as he reflected on this, he went on to say, 
under those fancy clothes, there had to be scars. There had to be swellings and boils of one kind or another because there was no other way to live in the world. He said, even as a young kid, when he looked at these unblemished, unburdened people on the covers of magazines, he knew that can't be real. No one lives like that. We all have burdens, and they're very easy to see when we look at the world around us. Just this past week, I read how in the past 20 years, the two leading causes of death for people between 55 and 64 have gone way down, being heart disease and cancer. Yet, the death rate for people in that age demographic has gone up. What has accounted for that? Deaths of despair because of opioids and suicide and, and, and cirrhosis from, from drinking in the past 20 years, this age cohort has been so burdened with things that they just can't cope. This past week, I got to go tubing with some of our, our youth, and I was moved as I heard some of our um, young girls just talk about the burden of beauty standards for girls in our culture and how that's just impossible to live up to and how that's a weight that they carry. And, and you don't have to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist to look around and see how mental health, while it's good that we are so aware of the reality of that, we look around and we see so many people are burdened by anxiety and, and by depression. It's so hard for people to live. Everywhere we look, people are, are, are burdened. Even if, like those people on the magazine covers, we try to project that we have everything all together, even if we try to project that we um, are not burdened. And so this, this boundary that Jesus makes is actually one of the most inclusive boundaries in all of humanity. But one question for us to consider, is Jesus referring to any kind of burden in particular? Is he talking about the burden of life in general? Or is there something more specific? And, and I, I think that there is. If, if you look ahead to the end of Matthew, in Matthew 23, in that chapter, he's railing against uh, certain people who have been, who've been giving burdens to, to others. And he, he says this about some of the, the Pharisees. Not all the, the Pharisees were bad. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but they, they had a tendency to have man-made additions to the law of God, to twist a good thing to make it unbearable. And this is what, Matthew, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 4. He says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He says these people are adding burdens. They're taking a good thing, they're twisting it such that people can't bear the weight of all these expectations. And we see that in just right after this, in the, in the 14 verses after this section, we see how some of the people who reject Jesus reject him because Jesus is not calling people to, to live in accordance with those standards. We see how these, these extra commandments, instead of being a gift of life, 
have become a burden, and Jesus is in conflict over the Sabbath, which has no longer become a cause for rest, a gift from God where a people who had formerly been enslaved cannot have to work to justify their existence, can trust that God will provide for them. The Sabbath has stopped being a source of life, but a, a, a burden, and he's, uh, he's re- resisting that. He's saying this is a burdening people, you don't have to bear that. And for us, we might think, I don't know what that looks like in my life. Like perhaps we, we don't suffer as much from the weight of man-made rules and expectations that we share in the name of God, though there are lots of those. Um, some are wise and some are not life-giving whatsoever, but I'd like to draw our attention to perhaps a different burden, a different way in which in our culture we have, we take things that are good and twist them to, to make them not a source of goodness, but a, a source of burden and, and toil. And I, I was going to try and go into something at more depth, but I wasn't articulate enough to, to um, put a finger on that. So I would encourage you, if you're the reading type, there's a book called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. And I think that's one of the best things that I've read that puts a finger on how and why so many people in our, in our culture today feel burdened. So go and read that if, if you'd like, but here's just um, a quick something else instead. There are lots of good things that we think will give us rest that end up consuming us. We think this will be a good thing, we go after it, and it becomes a burden that crushes us. David Foster Wallace was a, an author, he was an atheist, he was not a believer at all, but he captured this tendency that we have to chase after things and make them into a burden, and he even used the language of worship when he talked about this. And so he, he talked about the, the ways in which we burden ourselves with things that we think if we just get that, then we'll have rest, then life will be good, then I can kick my feet up. And this is what he says. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to to numb you to your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the verge of being found out. He puts his finger on ways in which we can chase after things that we think once we get them, they will alleviate our our burden, but instead end up being a weight around our necks. And so if, if we find ourselves caught in something like this, how can we find rest? Jesus gives us the invitation, and in the process he shows us his heart. He says in verse 28, come to me. And this is something that would have been kind of radical. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. 
Because in the Old Testament, the source of rest was God. God was the one who gave them the Sabbath, who invited them into rest. God was the one who in the Old Testament talks about who gave them rest from their enemies, who gave them rest in the land. God was the source of rest. And yet Jesus says, come to me. I am the source of your rest. And so the... And so Jesus offers us a source of rest from the burdens that we try to put upon ourselves. He offers us rest from the things that cannot satisfy our soul. And that was only possible, it's only possible to come to him to receive this rest if we believe, as Jesus says, that he is gentle and lowly of heart. It is only possible to come to him and receive this rest if we believe that when we come to him, he will not cast us aside. If we believe, as Psalm 145 says, that that the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, that he hears those who cry and he is near to those who call on them. We'll only want to come to Jesus in our, our burden and our weariness if we believe, like, like Romans 8 says, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But this is hard, at least it's hard for me, because it's oftentimes, it's hard for us if one, that hasn't been our experience in the world, or two, that's not our experience of ourselves. And so I tend to be very hard on myself. When I find myself burdened for trying to be good enough in some way, for, for me as the things that David Foster Wallace was talking about, for, for me it's more the thing that I end up chasing to think I'll be okay is if I can like have, if I can look like I'm omnicompetent, if I can look like I have my life t- t- together, then I'll be okay. And when I, I do that, I personally end up, I, I tend to fall into to, to two traps. On, on one side, I can like beat myself up and wear myself out trying to be good enough. And it's exhausting. Or I can get to a place of just being so exhausted where I'm just like, I can't do this, I've had enough of it, I, I, I give up and I, I withdraw. I numb myself in some kind of way. I think that uh, the Spelling Bee app and Sudoku are very effective for me. Um, and when I realize how like defeating this is, I start to get mad at myself. I'm like, Michael, you're 32. You're still caught in this pendulum of performance. Like, sh- shouldn't you be better than this by, by now? Like, what are you doing? It's easy for me, if I were to come to myself, to expect to receive shame and condemnation. And so it's easy to imagine that if I were to go to God like that, God would do the same thing, that Jesus would not be gentle and lowly, but he'd be stern and exacting. But that is not the case. Jesus says he is gentle and and lowly, and so what I get to do to myself in those situations is I get to preach to my own heart and remind myself that God is not like me. God is not like the world around us where you have to be lovely before God can love you. We can go to God with our burdens, even when the burdens are things that we took upon ourselves because we wanted to live like life apart from God, and God will still have us. He will still accept us. He will still welcome us in. That is the heart of Jesus. 
That is what we want Alice and Tommy to grow up knowing every day of their lives. That is what we want uh, Myra and Scott and and, and, and Gail and and Lane and, and us as a church, as we come around these kids, that's what we want we, that's what we want us to, to know so we can model that for them as well, that heart of Jesus. So Jesus says, come to me, come and see my, my gentle heart, and what does he say next? He, he says something that's kind of surprising. He says, take my yoke. And you might be like, wait, What? You're just talking about people who, are, who labor, who are burdened, and you're giving them a yoke? How will that provide them rest? That, that, that doesn't sound right. The, the word for, for yoke in Jesus' day was used in a figurative way to refer to, uh, to refer to being under subjection to something. So the Jewish people were under subjection to Romans. They were under the yoke of Roman rule. Folks who were enslaved were under the yoke of slavery. Folks who were training to be rabbis were under the yoke of the Torah. If you were under the yoke of something, it means that you were subject to something. And, And again, Jesus offers us a yoke because the, the, the Christian view of freedom is not that you're freed from all constraints, but you have the right ones. And so Jesus is saying, lay down the yoke of the things that are burdening you and take up my yoke. Take up the yoke that gives you the right restraints. So when we think about the language of yoke, we might imagine a picture of an oxen that's in a yoke that's pulling a plow, but I don't think that is the kind of yoke that Jesus has in mind here, because when he talks about this in uh, chapter 23, he, he, again, he says, uh, he, he says, talking about the yoke of the Pharisees, he says, he, they lay them on people's shoulders, and so you can imagine a yoke not just as the thing that an oxen clips into to pull a plow, but something you might have on your shoulders to help you carry p- pails of water or, or, or something like that. And when we think about that, if a yoke, if it's a good yoke, it's not going to be bad for you. It's not going to dig into your neck or your back. It's uh, not going to like, not fit you. It's not going to be too big or too small. It's going to enable you to do things that you could not do on your own power. If you have a good yoke, maybe you wouldn't be able to carry four buckets of water all at once. But with the good yoke, you can carry things that otherwise would have been a crushing burden. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, take upon my yoke, learn the right constraints that aren't going to crush you. And, and that's something like what we see in the Romans passage where, where Paul was talking about he, how he, despite his best intentions, he could never do what he wanted to do because of the power of sin. He had no power to do the good that, that, that he wanted, but he said he was delivered from that, thanks be to God, due to the work of Christ and the gift of his spirit. It empowers him to do things that he wasn't able to do be before. So we come to, to Jesus trusting that he is gentle. We take upon his yoke 
which is good for us, the right restraints, not improper burdens. And then we see that, that we can do that because his yoke is, it says easy. And if you were paying attention to, to Father James last week, you might think back on that weight. What's Jesus talking about? He says, take up my yoke for it is easy. Yet just one chapter before, he said, take up your, your cross. One of those things sounds very easy and hard. And the other one he specifically says is easy. So what is going on here? And I, I think that, I think that, um, that easy does not really capture what Jesus is trying to say. This, the, the word that he, he uses there appears seven other times in the New Testament and some 30 times in the Old Testament. And in no other instance is it translated easy. It's always translated um, as like good or kind. So if in Romans, the passage that says, it is his kindness that leads, him, that leads us to repentance, it's that word right there. In Psalm 34 or in 1 Peter where it says, taste and see that, that the Lord is good, it's this word right here that's translated easy. It's actually, uh, in the Greek, it's Christos. It sounds a lot like Christos, which means Christ. Some people think it actually would have been pronounced the exact same way. He says, the yoke that I'm giving you is good. You're not going to be able to do whatever you want. There will be constraints, but they're going to be the right constraints that will allow you to carry the right burdens. And we can trust that his yoke is good. We can trust that he will give us rest because Jesus himself, he took on the, the yoke of our humanity. He entered into our world where you cannot live without being burdened. He left his rest of perfect communion with God and the spirit in heaven, came down to earth, took upon our flesh, bore our burdens, took upon our yoke in our place so that we could be free so that we would not have to bear the burdens all by ourselves. That is the heart of Jesus. That is his good and gentle heart. And so the questions for us as we can conclude are, what are, what, what are the improper burdens that we are carrying? What are the ways in which we think they will give us rest? And how do they fail to deliver upon that promise? When Jesus says, come to me, do we trust that he is good? Do we trust that he is gentle? And can we trust that his yoke is good? Please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that you re reveal yourself to those of us who um, are burdened, who are not like the people on the covers of magazines or cultivated personas on Instagram who, who feel the weight of life. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see the, the gentleness, your humbleness of heart, Lord, that we would long and desire to come to, to you and receive the rest that comes from 
taking on your good yoke. Amen.